Good morning. Today's scripture reading is Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, Well, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading and the hearing of his word. Well, according to the late scientist, Carl Sagan, there are no dumb questions. How often have you heard that? I'm sure. You've heard that repeated time and time again as you sat in a classroom. The teacher wanted to assure you and all young inquiring minds that there are no dumb questions. Why? Because the only way to know is to ask. There's no shame in not knowing. The shame is in not asking. Now, perhaps this is true, though I must admit that I've heard some questionable questions in my time, and I am sure that I have asked a few of them myself. And so while we might debate whether or not there are dumb questions. There is no debating, beloved, that there are some questions that are more important than others. In life, most of the time what I have found is that we ask the wrong questions or at least we fail to ask the most important questions. I mean, we, we have a tendency to ask good questions because we remember there are no bad questions. And so we, we ask good questions, but and somewhat important questions. Questions like, where should I go to school? Or when should I go? Or, where should I work? Or what career should I pursue? Or where should I live? Or for whom should I vote? 
Who should I marry? What kind of car should I drive? Now again, beloved, I, I want you to understand that these are important questions in their context, and, and in any particular context, they deserve our attention. But they are not the most important question. If you had a few moments to have a one-on-one -on -one interview, interview with Jesus, what would you ask him? Would you ask him about school? Perhaps you might. Would you ask him which car you should buy? Or perhaps you would ask him for whom you should vote. You might ask him any of these questions because remember, there are no dumb questions. My beloved, in my thinking, Time with Jesus should probably have you asking the most important question. And the most important question is not about marriage. The most important question is not about cars and careers. The most important questions have to do with sin. The most important questions have to do with salvation. The most important questions have to do with life and death. The most important questions have to do with heaven and hell. Those are the essential questions. And, and our text this morning reminds us of that, beloved. There was one who got a few minutes with Jesus. There was one was allowed a one-on-one -on -one interview with Jesus. We see it recorded there in Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 25. He got a one-on-one -on -one with Jesus, and he didn't fiddle around with lesser questions. But he probably knew his time with Jesus was going to be short, and he wanted to get down to the most important question of all. When he asked this question, interestingly, Jesus didn't just answer his question. But more importantly, he illustrated just how important the question was. How important the question was then how important the question remains now. Notice the question. Then notice the answers. And then take note of the illustration. But notice the question. Verse 25, Luke 10. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now somehow, some way, this lawyer got an interview with Jesus. And when he did, he didn't fiddle around. He got right down to the heart of the issue. He wanted to know what he had to do 
to inherit eternal life. Why? Because this is the essential issue. This is the point, the essential question. And it wasn't just unique to this lawyer in the Bible. Others asked it too. In Luke chapter 18 and verse 18, the Bible tells us that a rich young man came to Jesus and he says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? This is the essential question. This is the most important issue. In Acts chapter 16 and, and verse 30, the Philippian jailer, when Paul and Silas are rescued from prison before they are able to leave, the Philippian jailer looks at them and says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? That's the question. That's the question because eternal life is the issue. Because in the final analysis, beloved, every day, life and death lay in the balance. That's the point. And if that's the question, salvation is the most important question. Where will you spend eternity? How do you make sure you are going to heaven? Have you asked yourself those questions lately? Maybe you should. Maybe you should. Maybe you'll be provoked to ask that question this morning. I think we think so little about eternity. And when we don't think about eternity, then we make trivial the fact that our sins have been forgiven. We make light, dangerously light, of who Jesus is and what he came to do. It is, asking the, it is in asking the right questions that we understand the purpose of our Lord coming. He came to take away our sin. <clears throat> he came to give us eternal life. He came to redeem us from hell and judgment. He came to answer those questions first and foremost. He came to supply the answers to the questions that mattered most. The questions of life and death, the questions of eternity, the question of heaven and hell. Unfortunately, when it comes to Jesus, too often our focus is on the here and now. When it comes to Jesus, we want to talk about my health here and now. We want to talk about Jesus and my wealth here and now. When we want to talk about Jesus, we want to talk about Jesus and my relationships right now, my comforts, my place and positions in the world. 
These are the questions that we usually raise. These are the questions that we want Jesus to answer. Now, don't get me wrong, beloved. These are important questions. But I want to remind you this morning that Jesus didn't come and die so that you and I would have those things. Answer this question. Y'all pay attention to me this morning and answer this question. How much of Jesus does it take for you to have those things? How much? Do you realize that you don't have to know Jesus to have good health and wealth? You don't have to be a Christian to have good flourishing relationships in this world. You don't need the cross to have a good job, to live in a good neighborhood. Jesus was not crucified, buried, and raised again for those things. And it's not because of those things. Therefore, that we believe in Jesus. No, beloved, you and I need Jesus for what matters most. What only the blood of Jesus can give. Eternal life. Salvation. The forgiveness of sin. Eternity in heaven. That's why, beloved, that's why, that's why this was such an important question. It's still an important question. What must I do to be saved? How can I inherit eternal life? Oh, consider it this way. This is the way Jesus put it on another occasion in Mark chapter 8 and verse 36. Jesus said plainly, what good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Now think about that. Say you have all these other questions answered, but you don't have Jesus. What do you really have? A good marriage? Well, congratulations, but you're still going to hell. A nice paying job? Great. But without Jesus, you're going to die and then the judgment. Freedom, justice, and equality? Wonderful. But without Jesus, you will die and receive the condemnation for your sins. This is why that was important to that lawyer. He realized what really mattered. This was life and death. This is why Jesus came. It mattered to him. How much does it matter to you this morning? How much do the eternal things really matter? Does your soul matter? 
Does heaven and hell matter? Does eternal life matter? It mattered to Jesus enough to die on the cross. What does it matter to you? Does your soul matter? It mattered to him. And that's why he came. And notice the answer. What a great question. But notice the answer. Notice Jesus' response to the question. Luke chapter 10, verse 26. He looks at the lawyer and says, well, what is written in the law? How do you understand it? That's interesting. This is Jesus' way of really getting to the heart of the questioner. That he doesn't just want the questioner to understand the importance of the question. He wants the questioner to understand who he is questioning. He wants the questioner to understand where the answer really lies. And so he says, well, what did the law say? Knowing the man is a lawyer. And how do you understand it? This is like the question that Jesus asked his disciples in, in Matthew chapter 16, right? When they were telling him what the people were saying about Jesus, and Jesus looked at them and said, yeah, but what do you say? What do you say? This is an important question, and your answer is equally important. And so Jesus here wasn't looking for public opinion. What does it say and how do you understand it? What is your understanding of these things? He wasn't asking the opinion of others. Why? Because, beloved, salvation is a personal matter. You have to understand it. Not your mother, not your father, not your sister, nor your brother. What does the word of God say? How do you understand it? How do you understand who Jesus is? What are you going to do with Jesus? Not what your mother did with Jesus. Not what your father or others did with Jesus. What are you going to do with Jesus? Because your faith determines your fate, beloved. Your faith. Not someone else's. Your faith and your faith alone. The lawyer, hearing the question, responds, doesn't he? Verse 27. And he answered, Well, the law says, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your strength and with all of your mind. And it also says, Shall love your neighbor as yourself. He answered, according to the law of Moses, because he was a lawyer. He answered according to the law. He gave the Sunday school answer. 
He gave the answer that is written in Deuteronomy chapter 6, the Shema. And every young Jewish boy and young Jewish girl would have rehearsed and known all too well. Hear, O Israel, it says in Deuteronomy 6 and 4. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your might. And he coupled that with Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 18, where it tells you to love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Every, every Jewish boy and girl would have grown up and learned this like we learn. Now that I lay me down to sleep. They would have learned this like the Woodard kids have learned the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven. When I learned that, I thought art was art. That Jesus and God was drawn in heaven. That's how long ago I learned that. And in this sense, beloved, this was not a bad answer. In fact, Jesus even commended him for knowing it. He says in verse 28, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. In other words, Jesus said, yes, this is the way. This is the way. But beloved, that way is too much. That way is too hard. Need I say that way is impossible? No one does this. No one does this, beloved. And the lawyer knew it. The lawyer knew he didn't do this. He knew he couldn't do this. Beloved, listen to me. I know we sing the songs about how much we love God, and we love God with all of our heart, we love God with all of our mind, but beloved, the next time someone loves God with all of their heart, with all of their soul, with all of their mind, and all their strength, will be the first time somebody loves God with all of their mind, with all of their heart, and all of their strength. Amen. Amen. The lawyer knew it. And he knew he had no chance with loving God like that. He had not loved God that way one day in his life. But then he thought, maybe my neighbor. Wait a minute. How about that neighbor part? I might be able to come up with the love that is necessary to love my neighbor. And so notice what the Bible says in verse 27. And wanting to justify himself, Jesus, we're not even going to talk about that God part, okay? Let's not even talk about the God part, but let's talk about this neighbor part. Now exactly, what do you mean by neighbor and who is my neighbor? Like a good lawyer, he's looking for a loophole. 
That's what smart lawyers do, right? That's what smart people do. They find loopholes. They ask President Trump, former President Trump, <laughs> why he didn't pay taxes. And he said, because I'm smart. Because smart people don't pay taxes. Smart people find loopholes. Well, you might be able to outsmart the IRS, beloved, but you are not going to outsmart Jesus. You are not going to outsmart your way to heaven. And the lawyer thought with loving his neighbor, he might have a chance. He thought he might have found a loophole, and Jesus said, son, not so fast. Not so fast. And he gave him an illustration. He didn't explain the love of God, but he did take the lawyer deeper into loving his neighbor. And by doing so, showed the lawyer what true love really is. He told him the parable of the Good Samaritan. And there's no doubt this is one of Jesus' most popular and well-known parables and teaching. It is well-known just not in the church, but out in the world in common culture as well. Whenever anyone is called a good Samaritan, everybody knows what that means. It means that as someone who does good, it means someone who goes out of his or her way to help someone in need. And so even in the culture, we have co-opted that term, good Samaritan. But beloved, this story that Jesus told here is not just about doing good. Here, Jesus is exposing our inability to love like God loves. Our inability and unwillingness to sacrifice like God sacrificed. Our inability to save ourselves. Eternal life, Jesus says, in the kingdom of God is inherited by those who love like God loves. And what does that look like? Jesus explained. The man asked for a definition. He asked for a definition of neighbor. Well, if you go to Google, Google defines a neighbor as a person living next door or living near to the person referred to. If you go to Cambridge Dictionary, it says it defines a neighbor <clears throat> as someone who lives very close to you. Someone who lives very close to you. Someone who lives next door, close proximity to you. That's the definition of a neighbor. That's the definition that the lawyer was expecting. 
That's the definition he was expecting to hear. A neighbor is someone who lives where you live, who eats where you eat, who goes to school where you go to school, who drives what you drive, who lives where you live. That's why they call them neighborhood associations. Is everybody out, everybody that can afford everything in here? Because everybody just alike. That's a neighbor. Just like you. Jesus didn't find it, didn't define it by the dictionary. As a lawyer would have it, he defined it by action. In fact, rather than define it, he explained it because the picture is worth a thousand words. And he painted a picture. And he began in verse 30. I'll tell you what neighbor is. A certain man, while traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho, was beaten, robbed, and left for dead. Traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho, was beaten, robbed, and left for dead. This was not unusual. This was not unusual. This would not have been shocking to the lawyer. The roads were dangerous, especially the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. It was dangerous. It was full of violence. They were used to such violence, just like you and I. Most of them had grown numb to it, just like we do. Every day, every, every day in my news feed, I, I read, get notifications of the senseless murders and killings and carjackings and robberies that happen around our city. Right here at East Point Church, right here in the parking lot, regularly, the police gather as a staging area for raids that they want to do in the local community. I come to know him, Lieutenant Watts and his men. We hear about the loss of life. We witness the disrespect for life. And most of us do, like Jesus said, the priests and the Levites did. We pass by on the other side. We pass by on the other side. Like Phil Collins once said, oh, think twice. Just another day for you and me in paradise. Beloved, who's really got time to stop? I mean, just, just think about it. Who's really got time to stop? Who, who's really got time to care? Well, in Jesus' parable, the Samaritan did. The Samaritan did. The Levite, the, the Levite didn't stop. The priest didn't stop. But the Samaritan did. And here's Jesus speaking to this Jewish lawyer. And did he just do the unthinkable? Did he just make a Samaritan the hero of the story? 
The assumption here, beloved, is that the man who was robbed was Jewish. It was a Jewish man who was robbed. He didn't live next door to the Samaritan. He didn't go to the same school as the Samaritan. He didn't eat where the Samaritan ate. He didn't live like the Samaritan lived. They didn't even dress the same. They surely didn't worship the same. And by most definitions then, this would not have been his neighbor. And yet the Jewish quote-unquote neighbors, brothers in the faith, pass right on by him. Here's Jesus, here's Jesus making this stark contrast, beloved, that the lawyer would have heard and Jesus wanted him to consider the difference between what he thinks is love and what God's love actually looks like. And the love of God has no boundaries. Has no boundaries. Here's the Jewish leaders. Here's the Samaritan. The Jewish leaders, they kept walking. The Samaritan, he stopped. The Jewish leaders, they left the man for dead. The Samaritan, he picked him up. The Jewish leaders ignored his pain. The Samaritan had compassion. The Jewish leaders did nothing. The Samaritan did everything. The Jewish leaders removed themselves from the situation. The Samaritan identified with the situation. The Jewish leaders saved themselves. The Samaritan gave and sacrificed himself to save the man. And when the lawyer heard this beloved, there is no doubt he was done. He knew he was done. He knew who he was. He was the priest who passed by. He knew who he was. He was the Levite who kept on moving. If that was going to be the way to inherit eternal life, what was he going to do? He couldn't love God like the law required. He couldn't love his neighbor like the law required. This love, beloved, is self-sacrificial. This love is unconditional. This love is without pride or prejudice. What was he to do? Who does this? Every time I hear people talk about the parable of the Good Samaritan, I want to look at them and say, who does that? I don't know them people. Nobody does that, beloved. Nobody stops everything that they are doing to help another. 
and then keep helping and keep helping and keep helping and then do it again and again and again and again. Who does that? Don't you dare read this parable and think that you are doing that. You are not. Who gives like that? Who sacrifices like that? And the more you read and the more you meditate upon this parable, you realize that the hero in the story is not the Samaritan. The hero is God. The hero is the one who is good, not the Samaritan. The one who is good is Jesus. Jesus is the hero here. There, beloved, there is a love that is required to inherit eternal life. There is a righteousness that is required for inheriting the kingdom of God. And that love and that righteousness is a love and righteousness that only God can provide. It is a love and righteousness found only in Jesus. This is love. Not that we love him, but that he first loved us. This is love, that God demonstrated his love for us in that while we were still sinners, weak, wounded, left for dead, beside of the road, Christ came and rescued us, gave himself up for us, and continues to pour out his love and provide for us. The lawyer wanted to justify himself according to the law, by seeking to fulfill the law's demands. Beloved, your hope better not be in how much or how well you love others, but in how much God has loved you in Christ Jesus. In Romans chapter 3, Verse 20 and 22, if you don't know it, you should know it. You should learn it like down I lay me down to sleep. You should learn it like this Jewish, learn, Jewish lawyer learned the Shema. You should learn it like you learned the Lord's Prayer. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now... The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. There is a righteousness and a love that has come not by way of keeping the law, but it has come by faith in Christ Jesus for all those who believe. And there is no distinction. It's available to all. Available to any. Because this love knows the true definition of a neighbor. 
That's the point of this parable this morning, beloved. A neighbor is anyone, regardless of who they are or where they are from, in need of help. And you can provide it. And I want to suggest to you this morning that no one is in more need than you and I. And no one, no one is more loving, no one is more compassionate than is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And here he is reminding that lawyer and he is teaching us again that no one can save themselves. Not lawyers or liars. Not priests or politicians. Only Jesus can save. It takes, beloved, an uncommon and indescribable love to save lost sinners. And this is the love of God to us in Christ Jesus. This is the depth of the Father's love for us. How vast, how, how vast it is beyond measure that he would give his only son to save a wretch, a poor, a lost, a left for dead beside the road sinner and make them his treasure. That's love. That's love. Remember, that's why Jesus came. He came to save. And to save through love. To give of himself for those who couldn't save themselves. For the poor, the needy, the helpless, the wretched, the in bondage sinner. He came to save. And those who are loved, well, beloved, you know what they do? They love. This is, this is the motivation of a life that is loved. A life that is rescued. A life that is saved. We love. Not so that we can inherit eternal life. But because in Jesus we have eternal life. We love. And we help. We help. We stop. And we help. And we help those who we can help. And then we point them to the one who helps the most. But my help, my hope, beloved, is not in my helping you. That's not my hope. My hope is not in you helping me. That is not my hope. And my hope is in Jesus, who came to help me. Because, like that man beside the road, I couldn't help myself. Amen. Amen. There is salvation in no one else.
Jesus came to rescue poor, lost sinners. You can be rescued today. He loves you. And he gave his life for you. He is here to help anyone and everyone who admits that they can't help themselves. Let's pray.